Welcome to Lab Sessions. I'm Zach Elliott. I love people, and I get to learn from some of the best. This show gives me a chance to invite you to join me in pursuit of more life and more beauty. Here's to that pursuit and to the conversations ahead. Hey, welcome to Lab Sessions and to this ongoing conversation and cultivation of more life and more beauty. I've never done it before, but this, uh, this is take two for this conversation. I was so excited to talk to my next guest that I forgot to even start pressing the record button. So that's my anticipation and level of anticipation for this conversation is high. It's such a gift to share time with extraordinary people who are living and leading in that way. And Dr. Andrew DeCourt is one of those people. He's the director of the Neighbor Love Movement, which works to inspire love, justice, and flourishing for all neighbors in Ethiopia. He holds a PhD in ethics from the University of Chicago and has lectured in ethics, theology, and Ethiopian studies at Wheaton College, the Ethiopian Graduate School of Theology, and the University of Bonn. Andrew's passion is seeing the precious value of each person and challenging cultural patterns that devalue others. He's the author of Bonhoeffer's New Beginning, Ethics and Devis- After Devastation, and writes weekly at Stop and Think. Andrew and his wife, Lily, live and work in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. I was introduced to Andrew and his work through incredible friends, and my respect for him continues to grow as I watch him pay a very real price to embody the words of the neighbor love movement. In a world with a lot of words, Dr. Andrew DeCourt is an important and beautiful expression of faith, hope, and love who we can learn much from. And I'm so grateful for the opportunity to share some time talking neighbor love with Dr. Andrew DeCourt. Dr. DeCourt, thank you for making time for the conversation and for the generosity of Take Two. Zach, thank you so much for your incredible hospitality. It's a real privilege and honor to be part of this conversation with you today. Yeah, well, it's it's been months in the making, and so I'm grateful to be here finally. And we had at one time hoped to maybe cross paths and do this conversation here in Florida, but COVID wouldn't allow it. But you're close. You're in Chicago. You're traveling right now. And I thought maybe before we dive in that you could just give us a little context. Tell us a little bit about home and life in Ethiopia and paint a picture maybe of your neighborhood as we start to think about neighbor love. Thanks so much, Zach. Yeah, Lily and I live and work in Addis Ababa. So Addis is the capital city of Ethiopia. It's also the diplomatic capital of the African continent. It's home to the African Union. About 5 million people live in and around Addis, and it's right in the heart of the Horn of Africa. So our neighborhood is a snapshot of Addis Sack. We live near a middle school and high school. There's a Chinese hotel and construction company next door. Save the Children has its headquarters in our neighborhood, the Ethiopian intelligence services in the neighborhood, several African embassies. Um, Across the street from our apartment is a a woman named Almaz who lives in a tent and brews coffee every day to make her living. Um, Almaz is incredibly resilient and strong. Imagine living your life in a tent in the middle of a city. Um, And there's a bunch of street boys in our neighborhood. Some of them are Miskana and Avenet. They shine shoes to make a living for their single mother. Um, so part of my daily rhythm is talking with Miskana, Avanet, and their friends. Um, at night, 
women dot the streets of our neighborhood selling sex to try to survive. Um, earlier this summer, I saw three men beating another man in the heart of the street with three rocks. Mm. Um, and it really broke my heart to see some of our neighbors just standing and watching this happen um, until I ran up to these guys with a rock and thankfully they ran away. And this violence, Zach, is, a, is an example of some of the rising tensions that we see in Addis and in the larger country of Ethiopia where ethnic tensions, religious tensions, political tensions are creating more violence, more killing, burnings of churches and mosques. So our neighborhood, Zach, is, um, is home. And it's a place of beauty and agony, a place of wealth and poverty. It's a place of kindness and killing, like so many places where humans live are. Um, so we love Addis. We love Ethiopia. Lily was born and raised there. That's where we met. Um, that's where Lily's family lives. We love them and their children. Um, so that's a little snapshot of home. Yeah. How how long did it take before, and maybe it's still a process for you, I'm just thinking I relocated from the West Coast out here to Florida four years ago, and at times I think, I wonder, do I feel like I'm at home? How long did it take you to feel at home in that neighborhood? Is And, and maybe is there a moment that you can look back and go, you know, the, the first time I really felt like that was a place that I called home was in this moment. Yes, yes. Home is precious to me, Zach, and it's also complex and confusing sometimes. I think the first few years that I was living and working in Ethiopia, home was one of the major questions. Where is home? Hmm. What does home feel like? Who is family? Because I was constantly living between Chicago and Addis Ababa, the United States, and Ethiopia. Um, so this was something that I really wrestled with. And I think that there was some uprooting and de-worlding that was taking place in my life that was really important to me to appreciate home. And I think home is where we love and where we're loved, where we're, we're known and where we can know. Hmm. And I think a real breakthrough moment was when I met Lily and her family really immediately took me into their lives and I would sleep over at their house. We would celebrate holidays together. We would pray together. We would eat meals together. Um, when Lily's sister and brother-in-law started having children, we were there for the births. And I'm dear friends with uh, Lily's nieces and nephews. Um, and we do life together. We play together. We do homework together. So I think that that embeddedness in family life of, of meals, sleepovers, prayer, children was really important for me feeling deeply at home and deeply safe in Addis Ababa. But that also comes through my incredible friendships with people who are so generous and sacrificial and honest and caring. Um, so home is still an evolving experience for me, Zach. It's sometimes I feel so deeply at home in one place and, and then at other times it feels less like home. So it's it's part of the complexity of being human in a world that's becoming smaller and more interconnected and also part of the beauty of learning that I can experience home pretty much anywhere where there's loving people. Mm. I love that picture of even the, the power of embrace that someone else, you know, we, we think, what can I do to make it feel like home in a place? And there's so many yes. things that we can contribute 
And there's something that we can't contribute, which is that embrace of someone else. Someone has to give us that. And, and Lily's family did that and embraced you, and it opened the door to that that really kind of supernatural, powerful experience of home, of belonging. And that's part of why I'm so excited to have this conversation. I mean, your whole life paints this picture. You just painted that picture in talking about your neighborhood. And so I want to talk neighbor love and this idea. But before we get there, you traveled back um, from this neighborhood that you just described, this complex place of beauty and pain and agony and celebration and people that you love and you left there, took to the sky, and headed back towards America. And it's not always easy to, to hear outside feedback or objective feedback, and so it can be scary to ask. But I think it's important, and since you are who you are and can help us see a little bit with some perspective, having lived in America and now being from the outside, what did you notice this time that was maybe different from times that you've traveled back as you closed in on this this year where it's an election cycle, we were amidst COVID as you traveled back and a host of other cultural cross pressures. What did you notice this time coming back to America that was maybe different from times in the past? Yeah, Zach, I think that I noticed maybe an incremental shift in a larger trend that I've been observing in the United States, and that is perhaps an escalating polarization and politicization. Um, As is often the case, our first experience getting back to Dulles and D.C. was TVs and hearing the headlines and the conversation that was being had. Uh, Lily and I don't have a TV in Addis, um, and those talking points just seemed more polarized than ever before. And as we settled in and met with friends and talked with neighbors and rubbed shoulders with strangers and had more conversation, I hear that um, simple things like wearing a mask, washing your hands, trying to observe practices that could really help the safety of our neighbors have become places of identity, places of cultural contestation, places of um, defending or projecting one's faith. And what I observe is that it's becoming harder for us to listen to one another. And I think listening is the basis of a good life and meaningful community and a healthy society where we can dialogue, we can disagree, and we can seek the common good together. And I observe that in this polarization that listening is becoming more difficult, Zach. We are preparing answers while the other person is talking rather than listening to them and following their train of thought. And thus, rather than having dialogue, we're more having debates and battles with words that are making it harder for us to connect with one another and share our deeply held values. And I think one of the things that's been hard to see is how this is infecting our church communities and how it's easy for us to follow along certain identity lines and certain political lines rather than really patiently listening to Scripture, listening to our neighbors, listening to the larger conversation, and not being conformed to the patterns of this world, but being transformed by the renewing of our minds. So polarization and this this, uh, reduction of listening are trends that I'm observing that are concerning to me. I would also say that I'm seeing other encouraging 
trends of more people coming out in defense of the dignity and the beauty and the goodness of um, our African-American neighbors in the United States. And that has been a source of deep encouragement to me, seeing people across religious lines, party lines, cultural lines, coming out and saying, what happened to George Floyd? Uh, what happened to other people in our community is, is a place of pain that needs to be grieved and addressed so that we can continue seeking a more perfect union in our society. So those are some observations. Mm. I love how you point out, you know, listening and the capacity to listen. It's just that there's a maybe an eroding of that capacity or a challenging of that capacity, and it's happening not just at the idea level. We're becoming combative and polarized, but even you know, the way that we think. You mentioned TV and talking points that there we're years into this technological uh, rapid advancement and. Even our minds are being shaped towards smaller sound bites. And another mutual friend of Roger and Rebecca's w- was sharing with me that 2,500 words is like the max that someone can consume in reading in written form, and that it's just becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And so it, it, we're facing this challenge, um, and there's real implications downstream in our neighborhoods. And I'll be honest, the last few months uh, have been everything for me from unsettling and disruptive to embarrassing and frustrating, and yet at the same yes. time, as you mentioned, kind of strangely inspiring and revelatory. And I went back and I listened to a lecture that you gave on freedom and authority back at Wheaton College. And as I listened, I thought, we're in a moment that we could benefit from talking to you about any number of things. And so, A, just keep speaking, keep writing, keep leading, because the, you're, you're helping us think well about these really important things. And now more than at any point in my lifetime, we need to think well about how we see each other and how we treat each other. And I think your work yep. with the Neighbor Love Movement can help us do that. Tell us a little bit about Neighbor Love and how, as you say, it's a revolutionary idea that could save our world. Zach, thank you so much. I am so passionate about Neighbor Love, and it is a privilege to talk with you about Neighbor Love on this podcast. So I think that othering is the biggest challenge facing our world today. And othering means seeing people as less or unrelated to ourselves. Hmm. An other is an outsider or an, an, an enemy. And othering often unfolds through identity markers like our faith or our ethnicity or the color of our skin or our political affiliation. And identity is a beautiful gift. In Amharic, it's mananet, which literally means who we are. <laughs> but identity can become a barrier to others and fuel this othering problem that makes us see people as outsiders or enemies. And I want to just give you a couple examples of othering, Zach, that I've observed in Ethiopia um, not long ago, I was in a very beautiful part of Ethiopia, up in the mountains, in one of the most historically Christian areas of the country. As you know, Ethiopia has a 2,000-year history of Christian faith. It's one of the oldest 
um, continuous Christian churches in the entire world. So I was up in this beautiful part of Ethiopia, and I was taking a, a hike with some university students that I was leading, and we were walking with these beautiful little girls through the mountains. Um, these were like five-year-olds, six-year-olds, seven-year-olds, and they were just tagging along and wanting to be with us. And so I was building a connection with these girls, and then I asked them um, just a very innocent question. Hey, what do you think about this other ethnic group? And they responded and said, oh, they are terrible people. Uh, the last time they tried to come to our city, our parents uh, burned their cars and chased them away. And I said, oh, okay, okay. And what do you think about this other ethnic group? And they said, oh, they're even worse. They're evil people. And you know, Zach, we continued walking and talking, and we passed a church, and these little girls literally bowed their faces to the dust mm -hmm. and prayed to God towards their church. And I thought, what a profound example of othering. These girls are full of faith. Mm -hmm. They're bowing to their church. They're praying. They're these little beauties, and yet inside of them, they have had this poison of hatred instilled towards people that they had maybe not even met. Hmm. I want to give you another example. A friend of mine in Addis Ababa is working on developing peace in the country, and he told me the most interesting story. He said that he met a street boy from another ethnic group, and he welcomed this boy into his home, and he's adopted this boy. But he said he has to keep this boy a secret from his mother because this boy, again, is from another ethnic group. And if his mother knew that he had taken in a street child mm. from this ethnic group, she would think that he is betraying his own group and making a terrible mistake in his family. So you can see the incredible roots of othering and how it destroys community. We can pray, we can bow to our church, we can have incredible faith in God. We can be family and have deep love for our son, and yet there are these other people that we see as inherently evil and needing to be driven away, even if they're children in the streets. And Zach, this is why neighbor love is a revolutionary vision and practice that could heal our world. Neighbor love says, see the other as your neighbor, as someone who is connected to you and precious to you. In fact, love them as yourself, mm. not more valuable than you, not less valuable than you, but equally valuable to you and cherish the other's life. Live with them as your neighbor. And I often say, Zach, that neighbor love isn't fuzzy feelings and happy thoughts. Hmm. Neighbor love is passionate will and practical work for others' well-being, just like my friend who took this orphan into his home, even though his own family would oppose him for doing this. Now, imagine if we saw people from different ethnic groups as precious neighbors, as diamonds that are shimmering with beauty and complexity. Imagine if we saw people from other religions as precious neighbors. Imagine if we saw people from other political parties, yes, as precious neighbors. Imagine if our churches became embassies of neighbor love that challenged the hatred, the violence, 
And the risk of civil war that we're seeing in Ethiopia today, now that doesn't mean that we're going to suddenly disagree or suddenly agree. That doesn't mean that we're going to suddenly all think and believe the same way. But the vision of neighbor love cuts through and we start with this conviction that that person in front of me is my neighbor. They have precious value and I will treat them with value respect, and practical compassion. And Zach, this is exactly the mission of the Neighbor Love Movement. We are traveling around Ethiopia and we are challenging Ethiopian young people to sign our covenant. This is a 46-word covenant that says, today I covenant to love my neighbor as myself. Every child, woman, and man is my neighbor across every um, boundary and identity. I choose to tr- see and treat my neighbor with value, respect, and practical compassion. Today I say, yes, I am an ambassador of neighbor love. And then we challenge these young people to embody our covenant in seven practices, Zach. And I love this because these, these practices are literally rooted in our body. They don't require money, They don't require technology. They don't require the internet. So start with your eyes. Hmm. I will practice seeing the other person as my neighbor and smiling at them. I will resist overlooking them. It starts with my mouth. I will speak to the other with compassion, with truth, and respect. I will resist speaking words of insult and intimidation. I will apologize when I make mistakes. The third practice is our hand, Zach. I will use my power to help others instead of harming others. I will resist using my power for violence. Mm. Um, Another practice is our feet. I love this one, Zach. I will move my feet to get closer to people who are different than me and build relationship with them. I will refuse to stay in my own circle. Um, Another one, Zach, is the heart. I will open my heart to the joy and suffering of the other person. I will practice empathy and pray for them, and I will refuse to take pleasure in their suffering or to harbor curses and desire for revenge in my heart. Another practice that we talk about is the brain. I will live an integrated life. Mm. I'll refuse to separate my values from the way that I live. A lot of the violence that we're seeing today, Zach, in Ethiopia is being perpetrated by people who go to church, people who say Jesus is Lord, people who are deeply spiritual, but somehow there's this disconnection between what we claim to believe and how we live. So we're calling for our minds to become reintegrated. And then the other one is the ears. I will open my ears to listen with patience, even when I disagree with others. I will resist closing my ears and only listening to voices that confirm my opinion. So we're, we're traveling around Ethiopia and saying young people sign this covenant, Mm. and then embody this covenant in these seven ways with your physical body and community with others, and then go out and live as neighbor love ambassadors. And a neighbor love ambassador is simply someone who embodies the neighbor love covenant in their personal and professional life. So we're not asking people um, 
to change their profession. We're not asking them to become any specific kind of leader wherever they are with whatever task they have at hand. We are asking them to do it with neighbor love. And we have been taking this to Ethiopia's universities. We've been taking it to the airwaves um, and to radio and to um, journals. We've been taking this to local in organizations, to government offices, to the homes of influential leaders. We have been taking neighbor love absolutely everywhere that we can, Zach. Um, and we have been doing it with this promise from Jesus. In Luke 10, Jesus says, do this and you will live. Love your neighbor and you will live. And as we see precious Ethiopia um, really on the brink of some terrifying violence, uh, many people think that another Rwanda could happen in Ethiopia. As we face this, we are inspired by Jesus' words, do this, love your neighbor and you will live. Um, so this is some of what we're working on with Neighbor Love, Zach. That revolutionary idea, it, you know, we, it's easy to read a revolution idea that could save our world. But as I hear you describe what what is possible in kind of the balance between war and peace or violence and peace, it is life mm. and it is life and death for a child to adopt a new lens that says, "I will embody these things." And what? What is it that is the greatest obstacle as you go out and share this idea and you're sharing this story and you're inviting people into this way? And I imagine you can almost see them wanting desperately for the outcome of that idea. You know, I think it's something that we all kind of lean towards. What's the greatest obstacle? Is it fear? Is it disgust? Is it just generational... Uh, habitual training in a in a certain way. What is it that's the barrier that you find people sometimes run into that is most solid and most significant for them to put that their name on that that line that document and to commit to that way? Yes. Well, there are many challenges, Zach, to the practice of neighbor love, but I think that there's one that's especially challenging for us today, and that's that we often construct our identity by negating others and affirming our superiority. Mm. We have learned to feel special about ourselves by thinking that other people are somehow less than ourselves. And so when we covenant to see the other person as a precious neighbor, we somehow feel like we're losing something, like we're less special, like we're less unique. And this is something that we're challenging because we deeply believe that when we see the other person as a precious neighbor, our life is profoundly enriched, profoundly deepened, profoundly expanded. But I think that this rooting of identity in the claim that our history is better, our practice of faith is better, uh, our political culture is better. And if we acknowledge those people as being equally valuable as ourselves, we've lost something. And so woven into that, Zach, is things like envy. It's things like um, a sense of inferiority. It's the fear of other people having power and harming us. Um, it's also hate, the desire for other people not to exist. 
Um, so there are many challenges that go into covenanting to live neighbor love. I think mm-hmm. that this issue of identity is extremely important. Yeah. When you started, as soon as you mentioned that and defining kind of what we're not, my mind leapt back to Richard Rohr talks about this, that in the first, you know, the container versus contents in the first half of life, we largely start to understand our identity by saying what we're not. I'm not this, I'm not that. And it's, yep. it takes much more for us to start to reframe or to discover who we are and by then, that's a difficult thing to unlearn that, you know, that we may have developed some habits of, or some disgust reactions about what we're not, that are not fair, that are not right. I yes. think you, I think you're yes. so right. And it's part of what happens in identity formation. And how do we, we need a new lens for that formation. Yes. Uh, well, the more I listen and the more I know of your story, um, the more my respect for you deepens because you've not only invested years of education, I mean, the, your PhD work and so much thought leadership nurturing this idea, but you don't stay in academia. You don't stay, you know, just writing and, and preaching this idea. You embody it. You're a practitioner. You're going out on the street. You're inviting youth to, to lean into this idea and to be a part of this movement. And you're working at the seams where lives are literally being torn apart and lost. And it's not without risk. As I mentioned, I've read the death threats that you're getting from inviting people to see each other as equals and to you know live that idea in your logo that people are precious diamonds. And yes. yeah, this may be personal, so you can dance around this one if you want to. But I had to ask because you know we become psychologists to help you know ourselves and others and soldiers for these reasons and those reasons. And I'm I'm always curious what's the why behind somebody's story. And so for yours, this passion for neighbor love, I, I had to ask what's behind it. What's the why that compels you? to stand in the face of death threats and to not just hang it up and, and take your family and relocate to a much safer place. Why sacrifice so much for neighbor love? Mm. Zach, three Ethiopian youth are my why. And I want to tell you their story very, very quickly. They're the real founders of the neighbor love movement and they are why I refuse to give up. The first is a little girl named Wudinesh. Back in 2005, Zach, I was pastoring in Addis, and I committed that year to walk to work rather than take taxis so I could save money and just buy very simple meals for the street children that I would meet between the apartment where I was staying and my office. And as I walked to work every day, I met this little girl, who was disabled, she walked with a crutch, and she would sell tissues on a cardboard tray after dark with her little brother, Jonas. And I have a little sister, Zach, and I have several nieces, and it broke my heart. Why is this little girl who is disabled and would never be able to run for safety if she was attacked, why is she working after dark on the streets of Addis. And so I got to know her a little bit and I bought her meals and her brother meals. And eventually I asked her, would you be willing to take me to your home? 
so I could meet your family. And she agreed to do that. I think at this time, Zach, she was probably about seven or eight years old. This was back, um, uh, I think, in 2007. She took me to her home deep in a slum in Addis, and I met her father and her mother. Her father was HIV positive. Her mother baked injera. She had two brothers and, um, and a little sister, and the six of them lived in one room on a single bed, and they had um, newspapers taped to the walls of their, their, mud, their mud room to keep the draft out because, again, her father had HIV, and if he got a cold, it could kill him. And as I was getting to know these precious people, they took out some records, and they showed me that Wood Dinesh was very gifted at school. She was the first or second student in her class every year. Um, and they asked me if I would be willing to support her to go to a private school so she could have a better chance of getting a better education. So we made a deal. I said, I will pay for Wood to go to school for the rest of her life if you promise me that you won't send her out on the streets to work anymore. Mm. And they made that deal, Zach. And... Um, Wood Dinesh has flourished. She is now a, a second-year university student at Addis Ababa University. Her dream was to become an engineer who could lift her parents out of poverty. And she is fulfilling that dream as we speak. And Wood Dinesh has enriched my life, Zach. I can't tell you the number of holidays that Lily and I have celebrated with her. When Lily and I got engaged, Wood Dinesh and her whole family was there when I got on my <laughs> knee because I told Lily that I want our marriage to be rooted in love for neighbors like Wood Dinesh and her family. They have brought us so much joy in some of the darkest moments of my life, Zach. What has sustained me is knowing that Wood Dinesh's mother, Itash, is praying for me daily. Mm. My point is that as we built relationship with Wood Dinesh and as we helped her pursue her education and get off the streets and chase her dream of lifting her family out of poverty, it was we who were enriched, not her. It was we who were brought so much joy. I've taken so many university students to Wood Dinesh's little house and we've had seminars in that single room, which has now grown into multiple rooms, thank God, mm. where we have learned about what it means to live a life of generosity and hospitality and service and resilience. And something I love, Zach, is that Wood Dinesh's name in Amharic means you are precious. Uh, and she is precious. And she's introduced me that when I move my feet and build relationships with others, like a street child, my life becomes enriched. I want to mention another why for the Neighbor Love Movement. His name is Eob. I met Eob on the streets of Addis 10 years ago, Zach. I was having lunch at an outdoor cafe, and this little boy walked up to me and begged for help. Hmm. And I said no, and he started walking away, and he was wearing a hood, and his hood slipped off. And when his hood slipped off, I could see that he had a horrific wound on the back of his head. And I had this moment of incredible inner struggle. Am I going to sit at this table and finish my lunch? Or am I going to get up and find out what's going on with this little boy? And I felt like 
the Spirit of God said to me, Andrew, if you say no to him, you have said no to me. Mm. And so I got up from that table and I ran down the street. In fact, I can't tell you that when I saw this boy, I could literally see his brain through this wound because it was so severe. I have never seen a wound like this in my life. It was a Saturday. Monday morning, I took him to the best hospital in Addis Ababa, Zach. We waited Monday, no one saw us. Tuesday, no one saw us. Wednesday, no one saw us. Finally, it was Friday night, and I went to the director of the hospital, and I said, why is no one willing to see us and help this boy? Finally, we were taken upstairs to a room, and a nurse came. This is a Christian hospital. A nurse came and said, he is a dog. He doesn't belong here. Take him back to the streets. And in fact, she took the name of Jesus on her lips when she said this. She said, but Jesus, in Jesus' name, take him back to the streets. Wow. Zach, I saw this othering happen in the face of a suffering child in a Christian hospital with Jesus on our lips. Mm. And you know what, Zach? Eob changed my life. In Amharic, his name means Job. He was so full of faith in God. He was so full of love for the other children in the burn ward of that hospital. He exhibited joy and trust and hope in God. His dream was to become a preacher and a professor who would inspire hope in the next generation of Ethiopian youth in the face of enormous poverty and suffering. Eo became what I call my saint of darkness. In many ways, he saved my life. My first book is dedicated to Eo. Um, but Eo passed away because despite all of the surgeries that we got and all of the therapy and care, it was too late. And why did Eo die? He died because for so many years, no one had seen him as a neighbor when he was literally wandering the streets with a wound on his head, no one had said, that boy is my neighbor. I'm going to take him to a hospital and fight for his life. Mm. So Eo is one of the founders of the neighbor love movement. When we see the other person as a precious diamond, we know how to live and we can, we can invest in the future of our society. Imagine Zach, if Eo was a pastor and a professor right now in Ethiopia, instilling hope in the next generation. What a richer community. What a richer society. How much more hope there would be. Mm. And the third founder of the Neighbor Love Movement is a woman named Ferdosa. Back in 2018, I was invited to come and give a lecture at City Hall in uh, a town called Dredua. This is the far east of Ethiopia near the border of Somalia. A town nearby, Zach, was experiencing ethnic cleansing. Youth were going door to door and telling minorities, get out of the city or we're going to destroy you. So when I was invited to come to City Hall and speak to a room of 180 high school students, I said, I'm going to speak about why we should love our enemies. And I did that with passion. And after the Q&A session, a young woman named Fredosa came up to me and she grabbed my hand and she said, Dr. Andrew, no one has ever told me to love my enemies before today. Starting today, I will love my enemies and I will teach others to love my enemies. And she raised our hands 
Mm-hmm. Like she was making a covenant with me. Mm-hmm. And it blew my mind, Zach, that in a, in a place with so much tension and so many lives being lost, this young woman had never heard these three words before, love your enemy. But when she heard them, something switched in her mind and she said, starting today, I'm going to start teaching people in my community to do this. And Lily and I are in touch with Ferdosa to this day. And we said, we want to travel the country of Ethiopia and look for the Ferdosas who will rise up mm. and love across boundaries so that the Eobs and the wood Dineshes of Ethiopia can have a better future and can flourish and can contribute to their society And, you know, Zach, when Lily and I moved back to Ethiopia in 2016, we had a quote from Martin Luther King Jr. burning in our hearts, and it still burns in our hearts today. The point of life is not to achieve pleasure and to avoid pain, but to do the will of God, come what may. These kids are our why for the neighbor love movement, and we want to do this, come what may. Those stories are so powerful that I know for everybody who who's listening, it's almost like we need to just take a walk and remember those names and let their stories kind of have do their work and and do their work in our lives as they have in yours. And in just in the moment, I'm awash with this mix of inspiration from their stories, conviction. Um, at the state of our current country and what I see happening in America and how much yes. the church could contribute. You know, I listened to you tell the story of the needs and mud walls and paper, and I'm looking out my window, and I, I, we live a really wealthy life, but by American standards, not so much. We're in a humble home, but I listened to you tell that story, and I think we have so much to give um, if we yes. if we truly saw people as neighbors, every life is precious. We can't yes. help but act and be compelled to act as you have. And so equal parts inspired and having this conviction. And then I think there's a third layer of of caution that, that's coming. When I hear these stories and you talk about civil war and genocide and door-to-door, house-to-house, othering to the level of violence, and then I contrast that with the tone in America right now, we're, you know, mm. we are not experiencing the vi- Well, there are, is violence in our streets, not as violent as what you're experiencing in Ethiopia, but I, I can't help but think you mentioned earlier, it's a poison. This othering is a poison. And I think if we experience what we're experiencing today and it goes unchecked, and we don't start to think about the other as precious, and we don't, we don't temper this thing in us that is saying, whether we're talking about Kamala Harris or Joe Biden or Donald Trump, or if you wear a mask or you don't wear a mask or you are white or you are black, and for everybody who's yep. listening, I just want to be honest that this is real. We are doing to each other this othering, and it may not look like violence even in your own heart or mind, but subtly... Little by little, there is this othering taking place in our neighborhoods. And I'm just saying, if we don't listen to the stories of these three young people, 
it doesn't take long for us to be face-to-face with violence in our neighborhoods. And instead of contributing to peace in another part of the world, we are now having to have people contribute to peace here at home. And I can't help but be a mix of that inspiration and conviction and concern. And I think people listening want to do two things. We want to rise up and we'll talk about how we can help, how we can pray, how we can contribute to help the neighbor love movement and contribute to what's happening in Ethiopia. I think there's a part of us that wants to lean in and say yes. There's another Uh part of us that might be just feeling that kind of rip current of cynicism and despair that says okay, it's a gr- yes, it's an ideal, and when we talk about it, it's it, our soul says yes. But is it really possible f- to break that cycle and for true reconciliation to take place between opposing sides? Not just little micro-movements in our own heart or mind or within our own camps, but true breakthrough and peace to be achieved when we start to see the other as precious. I wonder, do you have a story... Where you can point to and say, I've seen it. I've seen it happen in Ethiopia. I've seen a shift take place when, in a community that was radically divided, when people took one small step towards saying, I will, I want to spend my life living to love one another and love the other and to teach others. Can you help us? Where do you see hope? Where have you seen encouragement that maybe can speak to us that it's possible today to get about this? both there and here. Yes, um, absolutely, Zach. You know, in 2018, um, almost exactly two years ago, there was um, some political demonstrations that happened in Addis Ababa. And um, I won't go into all the details. It was a complex event. But what happened was there was a massacre that happened on the outskirts of Addis Ababa where, again, youth were going door-to-door and slaughtering people. We were seeing bodies um, being dumped in the streets and in trash cans. And the ethnic group that was targeted responded in an incredibly powerful way. Their elders came out in the streets, got on their knees, and held up grass. And grass in that culture is a symbol of peace. They got on their knees held up grass and begged for the youth in their community to not respond with violence. Mm. And there was an incredible moment of breaking the fire that was getting ready to burn the community down and turning the narrative towards one of forgiveness, of reconciliation and respecting the rule of law for every citizen in that community. That I think is a powerful powerful icon of hope in the Ethiopian community. Um, And I hold on to that. There are others like that. Um, I want to tell another story of interpersonal reconciliation, Zach, where a woman who was attacking me on social media and was petitioning for me to lose my job, uh, I met her at this conference for street children. Surprise, surprise, we both have passion for children. Mm. (laughs) I went up to her with tears in my eyes and said, I don't know what happened, but I I don't hold anything against you, and I want to get to know you. And tears started streaming down her eyes, and we made an appointment to have coffee the next week, Zach. We got together, 
And we talked for three hours about our passion for children and human dignity and seeing a healed and reconciled Ethiopia. And I walked away from that meeting saying, oh my goodness, my enemy became my healer today. I had told Lily that day about how depressed and discouraged in my work I was. And surprise, surprise, this person that was trying to tear me down became my encourager and my healer. Why? Because we sat at the same table, we asked one another honest questions, we patiently listened to one another, and we left with a sense of incredible connectedness and togetherness. Um, So I feel an incredible amount of hope, Zach, that neighbor love is not, again, just an empty ideal, fuzzy feelings, happy thoughts. Neighbor love is a rugged practical way of life that starts with my ears, with my hands, with my feet, with my eyes, with my mouth. And when I do this with others again and again, day after day, it's often incredibly fruitful at creating hope and reconciliation and collaboration and new possibilities for new beginnings. So I feel an incredible amount of hope, even though um, the darkness is deep and the challenges are extremely difficult. I love the picture of kneeling with grass, and I can't help but think about the protests in Portland and, you know, my friends out in Portland who are on both sides. of. I have friends on both sides of those protest movements and just the power that would take place if we were willing to take that posture. And I love your use of the word rugged. And for everybody who's listening, I don't want you to lose this. Dr. DeCourt, chose to walk to work. Don't miss that. That decision to walk to work was a micro-movement in order to facilitate resource to care for kids. And it was one tiny thin slice, but he acted in the direction of his hope. And the ruggedness that it takes to do that, those, it, it, it is, these big ideas, these beautiful stories that we're hearing, I want you to not lose sight of this if you're listening, that it was a decision to walk to work, to be present with the people in, on that street, and to do one small thing to free up a little bit of the budget to care for somebody else. And so it's possible. I want you to just think about that as you listen right now and reflect before we keep moving on in the conversation. Just if you're listening, think about those micro, th- those micro but rugged steps that maybe you're being called to, that maybe you could identify that would take one step towards reconciliation. Dr. DeCourt, thank you for that. Just the, we could go on and on talking about um, the work that's being done in Ethiopia. And before we close, I want to ask you how we can help. But I want to just lean in and and draw from your deep understanding of history and theology and just ask you to put your finger on the pulse of America. And what do you feel as you make sense of our moment right now? And how did we become, how how did this happen to us? Um, even within the church here in America. And I'm asking in hopes that maybe by diagnosing that and going back and saying, wait a second, how did we get to this place where, as you beautifully described in the beginning, we can bow to our churches and have the name of Jesus on our lips and yet completely dehumanize people moments later or in a tweet later or in a conversation later? 
How did that happen? What's at the root of that? Where did how did that so easily take hold? That's a difficult question, Zach, and I I couldn't give a, a definitive answer to that question, um, and I couldn't give an adequate answer in the short amount of time. But I think that I would say that arrogance and idolatry are really at the root of some of our deep problems. Look at the Declaration of Independence. It's a revolutionary document that is naming injustice and seeking to make a new beginning for a more perfect union, as the Constitution says. But any critique of our government is often perceived as an act of betrayal, as a rejection of patriotism, um, as something a, a foreign enemy would do, and we have lost, in many cases, this reforming mindset of how can we be honest, hmm. how can we face our failures, how can we live up to our ideals of each and every person having inalienable rights that all people are created equal. I see the same pattern in so many of our churches, Zach. Instead of having a posture of humility and searching our history and saying, where are our blind spots? Where are our bad habits? Where are our addictions? How can we be healed? Hmm. We assume a posture of defending and fighting for our righteousness. And this makes us blind to the ways that we're harming ourselves, that we're harming one another, that we're harming other people, and that we're harming the name of Christ in our, in our Christian communities. You know, I'm reminded, Zach, of the parable Jesus tells in Luke 18, there are two men that go to the temple to pray. One is a Pharisee, and he raises his face to heaven and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. The other guy won't even lift his face and says, God, I'm a sinner. Have mercy on me. And then Jesus says, which one of them went home justified before God? And, of course, his audience has to admit the one who said, I'm a sinner. Have mercy. I worry that a lot of popular Christianity has lost this humble, receptive self-critical, repentant posture to ourselves. And so, again, we dig into identity. We dig into defending ourselves. We close our ears rather than listening to the other, building bridges, coming together, seeking a deeper understanding and a deeper service, even where we still disagree. So I think these patterns in politics and in church culture of refusing to be deeply humble to deeply listen and to see reform and transformation as an act of faithfulness hmm. is really at the root of some of the problems that we're seeing today. And ultimately, that's a problem of idolatry, of, of worshiping our political uh, culture or worshiping our Christian culture instead of seeing the way that it needs to be transformed and repent and become a servant of Jesus. Um, so those are some ideas. Yeah. I love that you, I've heard you touch on repentance before, and that that may be, in fact, the most important idea right now that the church can sit with and spend time with and, and lean into. For people who, and I know I've, I want to be sensitive to your time, so I'm going to bring us to a close, but for people who are listening and they're ready to kind of, as in, in their posture, raise their hand and say, I want to participate in this. I want to be a part of neighbor love. 
I want to think about two things. One, how can we help um, in the in the work that's going on in Ethiopia? Are you are there areas where you, where we can participate in the work that you're involved in and support the movement, the neighbor love movement? That's one question. And then, if you would, on a personal level, would you go back and just recount those seven practices? Just just quickly point out those things, how our brains and our eyes and our hands and our ears can participate at a personal level. So maybe those two things, for those of us who are ready to participate, how can we get behind you and support the neighbor love movement uh, on a broader level? And then what are those seven things that we can start today and, and embody these things. And they don't, as you said, they don't take technology. They don't require um, financial contribution. These are things that, that are embodied. And you say energized. They just need our bodies energized by love. Yep. Yep. Well, let me roll those together, Zach. How can you respond to the neighbor love movement and become part of the neighbor love movement? The first thing is consider signing our neighbor love covenants. And that's available at our website, nlmglobal.org. Read that covenant and consider signing it. And then embody those seven practices. And if you're listening, I want to encourage you to just move your your body a little bit with me. Mm. Maybe touch your eyes. How do I see others? And who are those other people that I'm most tempted to overlook? What if my eyes became an organ of God to see and treat the other person as my neighbor. Maybe touch your ears. I commit to listening patiently. Even when I disagree, I refuse to close my ears, my voice. Maybe people can touch their mouth. I commit to speaking with truth and kindness. Even in the midst of disagreement, I will resist using insulting language or dehumanizing language to describe other people. My hands, maybe listeners can reach out their hands briefly. I will open my hands and assume a posture of service towards others. I'll refuse to use my hands to do harm towards others. Um, Feet, maybe move those feet if you're listening, sitting, standing. I will move towards people who are different than me. I'll move towards people that I see on the other side. I'll resist staying in my own comfort zone. On my heart, maybe you can put your hand on your heart. I commit to opening my heart to the joy and suffering of the other person. I won't celebrate when they hurt. And I'll rejoice when they succeed. I won't be envious. I won't hold grudges. I'll release a desire for revenge. And then, and then our minds, maybe we could put our hands on our heads. I will integrate my values with the way that I live. I refuse to live a divided life. I refuse to have a religious life on Sunday and then to go about my work during the week as a different person. Zach, the first response is sign the covenant. Mm. Um, embody these practices. Become an ambassador of neighbor love exactly where you are. Um, And again, like you said, it can take small, rugged steps, like I'm going to walk to work. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take that boy to the hospital. Um, I'm going to speak on behalf of loving enemies. Um, It can take a different form for each person wherever they live. 
And that's what I love about neighbor love. There's not one way to do it. And it's not about being a savior. It's not about changing the world as a single individual. It's about small acts of commitment to seeing and treating the other person as precious. The second step that people could do, Zach, is to do our 30-day mindfulness exercise. This is going to take them about 20 to 30 seconds a day. They can find it on our website, nlmglobal.org. Basically, what it is is a daily exercise for 30 days to expand who we see as neighbors. And again, it's, it's rooted in our practices. It says today, I open my eyes, I tune my ears, um, I open my hands, I move my feet to love a new neighbor every day. And we provide 30, 30 neighbors for each day of the month um, to see as a neighbor. And the goal here is to really challenge us um, to see as a neighbor people we might overlook. So, for example, in the Ethiopian context, we have street children as one of the neighbors. Um, we have prisoners as one of the neighbors that we refuse to overlook. Um, we have house workers um, as some of the neighbors we refuse to overlook. So consider doing this 30-day mindfulness exercise. We also have courses on our website, Zach. Um, I teach a a course in English that people can subscribe to and they can walk through. It's a simple course that will take them through the history and practice of neighbor love. If there's any Ethiopians or Amharic speakers listening, we have a course in Amharic where they can walk through neighbor love. Um, and then I would ask people who are able to consider giving to our work. Again, they can give on our website, Zach, but our work is done um, entirely through the support of neighbors near and far, many of them in the United States. And um, we need financial resources to be able to expand and increase our work in Ethiopia. And I'd like to just mention one last thing, and this is for potentially big givers. Mm -hmm. We have a dream, Zach, of opening what we call a neighbor love embassy in Addis Ababa. This will be a multi-purpose space that will have our offices our event space, a media studio, and a place for hospitality that will be radiating neighbor love for culture change, for leadership development, and for preparing for a new future in Ethiopia marked by cooperation and the common good. And we have an anchor $250,000 donor who's ready to help us chase this. And we're going to need um, upwards of even a million dollars more to go after this. Addis is incredibly expensive. It's even more expensive than New York, believe it or not. Hmm. And maybe if someone is listening, they maybe feel um, nudged to learn more about this vision of opening a center in the heart of Addis devoted to this work of seeing and treating others as neighbors. So consider becoming a neighbor love ambassador. That's the first step. Embody these practices. The second step is consider doing this 30-day exercise. It'll only take a few seconds a day. The third step would be to consider taking one of our courses and diving deeper into the thought and practice of neighbor love. Um, the fourth response act would be a monthly partner with us who helps sustain this work in Ethiopia. And another step is for people to consider giving towards this larger vision of establishing a neighbor love embassy in Addis that will be the hub for this work in Ethiopia and the Horn of Africa. Thank you so much for those steps and, and for the work that they evidence. I mean, to get to that kind of clarity and to be able to say to people, here are the resources, here's an invitation, Here's a small step that you can take. 
it that I just want to celebrate that for a second, and I'm cheering you on from Florida. It takes so much work to live out those rugged small steps and hold the dream of a neighbor love embassy both in your head and your heart and your hands. That is no small thing. And so everybody who's listening, I just encourage you, if you did that, you touched your eyes, you touched your mouth and your ears, I know that that moved you as it moved me and that the conversation has. Take a step. Take one of these steps and just pray about that. Each one of us is in a different place. But in some way, we all want to surround you um, and help you in this work. Personally, um, how can we pray for you right now, even in the stretch as you prepare to go back or as you prepare to enter the next season for you? What's top of mind just for you and Lily that we can be thinking about and praying about? I know that it takes a lot to do what you're doing. Yes, we would eagerly, eagerly like people to join us in prayer, Zach. We believe in the power of prayer and we crave for people to join us in prayer. Um, the first prayer request that we would have is for wisdom and discernment as we return to Ethiopia. As you alluded to earlier, Zach, I've gotten over 60 death threats for this work building bridges between polarized groups. And um, we want to exercise wisdom and being as safe as we can while doing God's work to the best of our ability. And so we're trying to seek wisdom from people who are... Um, wise advisors about how to do this. We need God's wisdom for safety, for security, um, while continuing our work. Another one um, is we are, we just had a board meeting a couple weeks ago and looked at finances for the year, and we need to do a lot of fundraising to keep our work sustainable in Ethiopia. For our work, we have an Ethiopian co-director, we have a media director, and for all of the projects that we're leading. And so praying for God to bring partners who would, be filled with joy and passion for this work and want to invest into it. Um, I think that the third thing that I would pray for that's probably most important is for us to have an abiding sense of radical hope. Um, This is an intense time where many people are afraid. Many people are filled with grief. There's an intense sense of uncertainty about what the future may bring. Um, As I said, several people are talking about what if Ethiopia turned into a kind of Rwanda situation where there's mass killing taking place. In the midst of this, we want to be people of radical hope who have deep clarity, who are gentle and tender and focused. And so we would love for your listeners to pray that we would have fresh hope as we transition back to Addis and continue our work. Yeah, a, an abiding sense of radical hope. That is a that is a prayer we will commit to pray for and to stand with you in prayer. And and our prayer is that you'll return refreshed and um, and that this will just be the beginning of a conversation. And so again, people can reach out to you directly. Give us the best ways. I know you mentioned nlmglobal.org. People can go to the website. Are, is there another way that you would say, you know, Instagram, social media, is the website the best? How can people stay in this conversation with you directly? Yes, people can email me directly. I would love to start a conversation. My email is andrew at nlmglobal.org. 
please send me an email. I'd love to share my phone number with you and we could have a conversation over the phone or WhatsApp. I'm very active on Facebook and I would love for people to engage that conversation on that platform. My name is Andrew DeCourt. You just search for me, you'll find me. Um, and then our website, nlmglobal.org, has a lot of information about our movement. It has the covenant. It has the 30-day mindfulness. It has our courses. It has other resources that um, your, your listeners can engage, Zach. So, yes, I'm available. I'm passionate about relationship. And I would love to meet people, start conversations, develop friendship, and grow together. I'm just sitting at my desk, and I'm looking at a book a friend gave me that called Mere Believers, and it says how eight faithful lives changed the course of history. And I really believe that Dr. Andrew DeCourt is one of those people um, that will be in books like this. And so, Andrew, keep doing the good work. Don't grow weary. You're a powerful witness to neighbor love, and all your work around the world is inspiring to us, but even just this conversation and the fact that you shared the time is is a gift to so many of us. So don't grow weary. We're praying for you, and we pray that your life and this idea just light a million candles and that there is neighbor love in greater and greater degree in all of our lives and around our neighborhoods as well. I want to invite you to have the last word, and you know what a gift to have you pastor us all in this moment. But as we head back out into our neighborhoods and into the tension um, in whatever, whether it's Ethiopia or New York or Portland or here in Florida or out in Seattle, just offer us this one last bit of encouragement uh, as we go back out during this really divided time and time of great suspicion. Um, but I'll give you the final word. Zach, I want to thank you again for your incredible hospitality and generosity towards me. You have encouraged me and lifted my spirit. I want to say to everyone listening, Jesus promised, do this and you will live. It's Luke 10, 28. Love God, love your neighbor, and you will live. We all long for flourishing, for a life of well-being and fullness of life. And Jesus says that when we take steps to love across boundaries, we'll flourish And I want to encourage everyone listening, choose today to speak with kindness. Choose today to listen patiently in disagreement. Choose today to see that person that may fall into some identity marker as someone who has precious value. Choose today to move your feet to get a little bit closer rather than farther away. These are steps of hope, and Jesus says this is the way to life. I'm so grateful for you, Zach, and your family. Thanks for your hospitality. Amen, amen. Dr. DeCourt, thank you so much, and we'll be praying for you in the days and weeks to come. Thank you for listening. Make sure to go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe to Lab the Podcast. You can rate and review us there. And then follow me at Zach J. Elliott or on my website, www.zachjelliot.com. I'll see you again for our next Lab session. And until then, here's to more life and more beauty.